Let's dive in. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, you are the giver of every good gift. You are the giver of life, of friendship, of fellowship, of food. You're the giver of the sunshine and the rain. You are the giver of your Son. You have given yourself to us. You have given us uh, your word in the words of Scripture and the history of people and the presence of Christ in the continuing presence of your Spirit that teaches us, that informs us of things we don't know about, things we don't know about ourselves, things we don't know about you, things we need to know about so that our minds can be shaped and our hearts can be inspired so that we can live in ways that express the joy that is in your heart. We remember these things as we uh, open your word today and open ourselves to its power. Indeed, your word is powerful. It's a word that uh, teaches us what we need to know. So come and be with us for the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, are you enjoying Genesis? Okay, that's good. That's good. Every once in a while, I have to stop whatever it is I'm doing and say to myself, remember, you like doing this. <laughs> do you ever have to do that sometimes, right? This is what you chose to do. This is what you think you're supposed to do. So just try to enjoy it a little bit. So with Genesis, um, of course, we are going back into very, very old history and of different kind of history than, than many of us are, are used to studying and thinking about. Uh, but it is history with a particular purpose. It is what we would call salvation history. I don't think I've used that term much lately with you, but salvation history. All history, all history is told for a reason or a purpose, right? Um, you, cannot, you cannot tell all history. All history would be a chronology of everything. And in one second, so much goes on that it would overwhelm us. So all history is a matter of selecting what you think is important and organizing and arranging the information in such a way that it tells the truth about what you think is important. But in that process, of course, you have to eliminate tons and tons of stuff. And so we need to understand that the Bible, one way of looking at the Bible is to look at it as salvation history. It's not telling us everything about everything. You're not going to look in the Bible for a, a good recipe for pecan pie, for instance, which is one of the most important things to know in life, let me just say. <laughs> But you are going to look in the Bible for what Dallas Willard called once the most reliable information about the most important questions. I like that phrase, the most reliable information about the most important questions. And so that's what we have in, in the scriptures. Now, what I just said well, was a statement of faith. It was a statement of belief. That's what I believe. That's what you believe. And as I get older, I, I believe it more and more, that the Bible is more reliable than I used to think it was. And it talks about the most important questions. And the older I get, I think I understand what those questions are, notwithstanding the pecan pie comment. Well, no, actually, pecan pie is very important <laughs> at any rate. So let's dive into uh, chapter 14, remembering where we are in the story. God has made everything. We fouled everything up. God wiped the slate and started over again for the most part. And then God came to Abraham, a very specific person, and gave Abraham a plan of salvation history. Abraham, through you and through your posterity, I'm going to remake the world. I'm going to reveal who I am and what I am and how the world can come back to me. And so that's what the story is about. Abraham believes God. Abraham trusts God. Abraham acts on what God says. All of that is one piece. 
you cannot say you believe and trust God without acting on what God has said. And Abraham does that. Now, of course, he's not perfect in that. And that's part of the story of salvation history as well. But we have to, today in chapter 14 uh, another story or a couple of stories uh, that are centered around the person of Abraham. But, of course, they include a lot of other people. Now, I'm a little bit reluctant. How many of you have read chapter 14 already? Did you read this ahead of time? Okay, that's great. Great. Um, I'm a little bit reluctant, but I think I will go ahead and read the opening section of chapter 14 because I want you to be thinking uh, as I'm trying to accomplish uh, some version of pronunciation of all these names. I, I want you to be thinking about why this information is here and what this information is saying to us. Okay, so let's dive in. Genesis 14. In the days of King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Chedorlaomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim, these kings made war with King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemaber of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and subdued the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the edge of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and subdued all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with King Chedorlaomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goyim, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who lived in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Okay. What do you get out of that? Let's get the microphones going early today, shall we? Allegiances in men come and go. Absolutely. Absolutely. We really know almost nothing about these kings, about their kingdoms, we have a general idea of where their, their kingdoms were, if you will. Uh, but the story reads like any other story of history. You have a group over here who are allied together fighting against over, uh, another group over here who are allied together. Uh, one group wins, one group loses. And what else is new? Right? What else is new? Good observation. Good observation. One thing we can say about this is that this piece of the story helps us understand that there is a real story going on. There is a real story going on. The story of Abraham, lots of people look at and say, well, Abraham was a made-up character, right? It's just too convenient the way everything happened in his life. And yet, here we have real kings in real places doing real things that real people do. Tragic things, hard things, but, but real things. And so this helps us understand uh, the fact that Genesis is located in time and space. And to go one step further, we would say that God's activity, God's presence, God's involvement is located in our time and space. Okay, someone else, any, any comments there out of all of this stuff? Out of all of this stuff, anything else that arises there for you? Yes, ma'am. Let's get the, we got the mic going. Here we go. Humanity doesn't change. This is much like the warlords of today in the Middle East, going back and forth. 
humanity doesn't change, absolutely. This is just like the wars in the Middle East. There, one, one commentator I looked at suggested that perhaps the, the thing that they were fighting about was control of the trade routes uh, between the Far East and Egypt, right? This part of the world uh, where, where modern-day Israel is, uh, to some extent modern-day Jordan as well. This part of the world is not very rich, it's not very wealthy, but Egypt was a rich and powerful kingdom. The Assyrian Empire or the Persian Empire, pick your period of history, are rich kingdoms. And control of the trade routes between those two places was important. Why was it important? because you could charge taxes. <laughs> and, and, and so this comes down to money, right? Uh, th this is not a fight over oil yet. Yet, right? But, but that's exactly right. Humanity does not change. Humanity does not change. Yes, further comment. Say it again. Bitumen is oil, yes. They fall into the, into the bitumen pits, right? Right? Lynn and I speak a different language in case you haven't figured that out. <laughs> yes, they fall into the oil pit. Nothing is made out of that fact. Other, you have this sense that they fell in the pits and that's one of the reasons they lost. Okay, great. Great. So again, that puts this in, in a real place in real time. Uh, most scholars will say we really know nothing about these kings. Uh, we don't know much even about where they're where their uh, kingdoms were located other than uh, the comment about this being in the area of the Red Sea. Uh, a lot of people agree now that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll figure later on in the story, of course, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are now covered by the waters of the Red Sea, or, of, of, the, of the Dead Sea, uh, or the Salt Sea, sometimes it's called. So again, this helps us understand that this is real, real time, real history, real stuff going on. So let me ask: Is there is there any theological, is there any theological or philosophical kind of idea that you can take from what goes on here? Let's hold that question as we continue to read the story because it's an important question. Okay, picking up with verse thirteen. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, okay, now we're coming back to the story of Abraham, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. Notice, not 317, not 319, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and routed them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the goods and also brought back his nephew Lot with his goods and the women and the people. Okay, Abram is now involved because Lot is involved. Something that's going on in the the regional politics of the day, the wars and the comings and the goings, something that's going on in all of that is going to give occasion for God to be involved, right? We've already heard that God is involved with Abraham and his family. So Abraham is involved, so we know somehow God is going to be involved in all of this stuff that's going on. Now, it's probably safe to say that all of those kings who went to battle against each other were not thinking to themselves, I need to start a war so that God can be involved. Right? Although we know lots of kings who won't go to war unless they find a priest somewhere who will tell them this is what you're supposed to do, right? That's part of history. But... God is involved. Abraham is involved. This is one of the places, one of the very few places really, where we are told anything about any of the patriarchs of the Old Testament being involved in warfare, right? Who are some of the other figures of the Old Testament that were involved with warfare? You don't think of, you don't think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph, but who do you think of? David, of course, David. That's really, in, in many ways, that's why David 
became David <laughs> uh, is, is because of, of his great political and military skill. Here, Abraham has significant military skill as, as a leader of an army. Absolutely fascinating, right? Let's look a little bit more at just the historical context of this and, and what actually would be going on. I like to do that because it helps me understand the humanity of the situation, right? It is so easy when you look back at history to say those people were different. It was a different time. I can't understand what they maybe would, would have to say to me today. But all these kings of all these places... We're not, we're not talking about a, a kingdom like the United Kingdom at the height of its power or some of, the, some of our modern-day understandings of kingdoms that are, are huge realms. These are, these are kingdoms that we would more likely refer to today as city-states, right? There's a main city, and the king controls that city and the region around that city, maybe as far as you could walk within a few days, uh, and controls all of, the, all of the, the farmlands, controls all of the grazing areas for the sheep herders. Uh, but they're, it, in our modern way of thinking, they're very small kingdoms, right? That's why you have so many kings and so many kingdoms. That's why Abraham can go out with just 318 men. That's not very many in today's way of thinking about things, right? Uh, but but, but that, back then that was important. What, how do they fight, right? What do they do when they fight? Well, when you fight, when you win, um, the reason you're fighting is so that you can control more territory and have more stuff. You could argue that's the only reason people fight about anything ever in human history. But, but that's fundamentally what it's about. And so if you win a, a war, if you will, against a neighboring state or wherever, you are going to take their goods especially their food, you're going to take their livestock, and you're going to take people, especially young men who are strong workers and warriors and young women who can produce more people for you. That's the way it worked. So you take people and stuff, and you control that. That's going to become important later on uh, in this story, but that's, that's the way it worked. So, let's keep going. Abraham uh, goes and he fights and, and he wins, right? And he recovers all the stuff that's been taken from Sodom, okay, from Sodom. Lot was living in Sodom. He goes back and gets Lot and, and uh, all of his goods and the women and the people. And then we pick up the story with, chapter seven, with uh, verse 17. After his return... After Abraham's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out. Remember, the king of Sodom had lost. The king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Parentheses here, the king's valley is fairly well understood to be located somewhere close to Jerusalem, okay, modern-day Jerusalem. All right, so... Abraham is coming back after defeating Cheddar Laomer. He's recovered all the stuff that had been taken from Sodom, and the king, of, the king of Sodom goes to meet with Abraham. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, so that you might not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men, the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Okay, there's a couple of stories going on here. Let's take them apart. Let's first take the story of the encounter between Abraham and the king of Sodom. Okay? The king of Sodom comes to meet Abraham. Why? Well, because Abraham has some of his stuff. <laughs> right? And the king of Sodom tries to cut a deal with Abraham, okay? He says, all right, let me keep the people, you take the stuff, 
right? Shrewd politician, shrewd politician here, shrewd leader. You know, he realizes that if he asks for everything back from Abraham, he's probably not going to get it. He's certainly not going to get everything. He might might not get anything because it's Abraham who went and got the stuff back. And so he says, okay, I want the people, you keep the stuff. What does Abraham say? No. No. Abraham says, no, I'm not going to keep anything except what the men have eaten which is a way of saying, it has cost me something to go fight this battle, and I'm going to take, the, take my costs out of this, but I'm not going to take anything else. I'm not going to take anything else. You can have it all back. Oh, by the way, some young men went with me, uh, probably young leaders who were with him. He said, and I'm, I'm going to let them keep their share, probably a very small portion of, of the, the whole thing, right? I'm going to let them keep their share. He, he, he helps the younger men in, in, his, uh, in his extended family, in his kingdom, if you will, in some sense, even though he's not called a king, right? And, and so king of Sodom, you can have everything back, right? Why does Abraham do that? He could have kept everything, and the king of Sodom couldn't have done anything about it. It is good business, right? Yeah, no, absolutely, it is good business, right? There's an element of this that's just very human, right? In doing that, Abraham would likely make the king of Sodom into an ally, right? Okay, why else would Abraham do that? He rewarded the men who helped him, yes. He also made, he, he, he solidified the relationship uh, that he had with the younger men who, who worked under his authority, right? Why else? His boss was God, okay? Notice what Abraham says. I'm not taking anything because if I take it from you, you are going to say, I made Abraham rich. Who made Abraham rich? God. God. There's a theological thing that's going on here. Now, what that conversation that we just had is a crucial conversation because it identifies very human ways of understanding what went on here, but it also identifies something else that's going on, and that is the involvement of God. Right? Let's think for just a minute about how that conversation might happen with a modern day person. Right? Um, Think about yourself or someone that you know uh, who might look at what has happened to them and how how they might describe what has happened to them. Okay? Maybe that's not a clear enough question. Let me start to answer the question for you, okay? Um, You're sitting down at a dinner party and you're introduced to the person who's sitting next to you and you are told that this person uh, invented, um, uh, pick something interesting, invented the cell phone, okay? Actually, we did have the guy who invented the cell phone speaking here several years ago, right? Marty Cooper, I think, was his name. Wonderful scientist, right? You guys remember Marty talking here? Okay, so you're sitting next to Marty. Say, Marty, tell me about your life. said, well, I was a really great student, and I busted my buns studying, and I worked hard, and I organized all these people around me, and I invented this magnificent thing, and now I'm the inventor of the cell phone, and I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Okay? Marty could say all of that, legitimately so, okay? What else might Marty say about his life and his history, right? Marty might say, I was fortunate to be born into a family that gave me an education, and I was fortunate to have a brain that I could use, and I had some really, really lucky breaks around, along the way, and God brought some, and, and, and some, mag, let's, I'm going to leave God out of it for a minute. That's hard for me to do. Uh, and, and some wonderful people came into my life who really helped propel me along the way, and we had this great team, and blah, 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 blah. That's something else Marty could say, right? Okay? 
Now notice there's a shift in that. Not, not I did all this stuff, but uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff that was in my life that I didn't do. Okay, now let's, let's kick it up a notch. Let's bring, let's bring God into that, right? Well, where did all that stuff come from, Marty? Right? And, and by the way, I'm, not pick, I'm just using Marty because he's a great example. I, I, don't, I don't know what Marty would actually say. Uh, he was a sweet guy, so I would hope he would say some of this stuff, right? Um, Marty might say, you know, I, God has blessed me all along the way, and there's no reason that I would have had this kind of life except for something else being involved in my life that helped make that happen. That's a theological statement. That's kind of what you have going on here. And that's part of what you have going on with the whole story of Scripture. Right? You could read the whole history of Israel and look at it from purely a human point of view. And from a purely human point of view, the story really doesn't turn out so well. (laughs) I mean, Israel never was a superpower like Egypt or Syria or Assyria or the Persian Empire or any of the other empires that existed during the thousand-year history that's included in the Bible or 1,500-year history, right? Um, And Israel got wiped out. And Israel was reestablished, but it still, you know, fights for its survival. That's a whole other story. Let's not go there. But on the human surface of things, Israel's history is not all that impressive. But there's a different story that we believe there's something else going on. Does that make sense to you? That's an important transaction. So Abraham refuses to uh, say that everything that he has and everything that he is is the result of purely human activity. That God is involved in that. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? Okay, yes, question, comment. Right, Barbara, hold your hand up so the, the microphone people can see it. Thank you, Vanna. Okay. Um, to me, you know, it's a very sad thing that throughout history, people, men, have used God to justify what they do going to war, committing atrocities, and... For me, it's very hard to discern at times, you know, what really is valid, uh, you know, in those cases, especially not so much modern times, but more historical times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. God is often used to justify what we want, right? We also have to say, because the Bible says God is sometimes involved in what goes on. And, and how is God involved? And where is God involved with this? Uh, one of uh, skeptics who, um, who want to deconstruct the story of the Bible say, you know, I just can't believe in a God who would command all these killing and all these wars and all that stuff. And, um, and I have to agree with them. I, I, I don't believe that's what God was doing. I believe that's what we were, we were doing with God, um, using God. Uh, and yet still in the midst of all of that, somehow, God is still at, at work. So there are points in history, I think, where you have to say God was actually at work. Um, the easiest example of that uh, in recent history is probably World War II. Now, World War II was fought for a lot of different reasons by a lot of different people, but one of the reasons it was fought is because of um, a godless totalitarian uh, mindset that um, came to the fore in part of Western Europe and, um, and began to spread and destroy a civilization that in many respects was doing fairly well. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, there's never anything pure in human history, but one of the reasons that that war was fought was to fight against that destructive ideology that was not of God. Uh, And in the process, um, a lot of people died, certainly. Uh, But in the process... Maybe more people were saved than died. 
That's an interesting historical question. So your comment is extremely well taken and, and, and then has to be evaluated within a larger context in some sense. And we live in that tension all the time, don't we? All the time. Um, that tension exists in our world today. Uh, in fact, I saw evidence of it just a few hours ago as I was reading some of the news reports about yesterday's elections. Because some people in yesterday's elections, maybe all people, uh, but some people more overtly than others, um, proposed that their election uh, was, uh, was about um, God's involvement. Um, and, and they invoked the name of God in, in particular ways. Um, and so we do that all the time. Um, some of those people won yesterday. Some of those people lost yesterday. Uh, and so we have to sit back and look at that and say, hmm, I wonder what God was doing in that. And that's as far as I'm going to go with that one. Okay? Other, yes, more comments? Got a, got a hand up? Let's get a microphone here. Last week when we were talking about Abraham, you were talking about that he wasn't always faithful to God. He made his own choices, his own decisions. And I think there was three, you know, with um, Hagar and, you know, was it Lot that went the one way? And he went, you know, he just kind of made his own decisions. That right. Way. And it seems like, I'm kind of going down this rabbit hole. Um, it seems like every time God would tell him to do something, he would decide to do it maybe the way he wanted to because God loved him so much. But then it's starting to look like God has to always come behind mankind and fix it in post. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't know, I mean, then you get into Jesus and all that. And, you know, I'm starting to think, well, do we just make up all, you know, all this history and we keep just doing the same darn thing over and over again? And how do we, um, you know, or, or is God just going to keep fixing it in post for us every time we make a mistake? You know, how does he keep loving us? I mean, I don't want to, you know, there's a lot of questions there, but I yeah, think... Yeah, about 16 things. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you. I mean, when you start thinking about this stuff, you say, what about this? What about this? What about that? It gets overwhelming, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Golly, which one of those am I going to talk about? <laughs> Let's talk about Abraham's decisions for a second. I think that's where you were starting. Um, yeah, the Bible uh, tells us stories about people who make decisions. They sometimes think that these are the right decisions that God wants them to make. And other times we are, we are told that maybe God wasn't involved in the conversation and they decided anyway. Um, and sometimes their decisions turn out to be the right thing and sometimes the wrong thing. Uh, in the case of last week's lesson where uh, Abraham threw Sarah under the bus, uh, and it turned out that that was not a, a wise decision, uh, a, a, a faithful decision, a moral decision. Um, so that tells us that human life is about making decisions that we want to involve God with, but we don't always involve God with. And even when we do invoke God or involve God, sometimes we get it wrong. But sometimes we get it right. And there's a lot more information that comes along in Scripture that helps us learn more about getting it right than getting it wrong. Um, we're all more familiar probably with the New Testament where Paul talks about living by the power of the Spirit of God and testing the spirits in, a, in saying to us that when we are thinking of a decision that we need to make, we need to evaluate that decision based on what we know of what God would want, right? God wants truth, God wants love, God wants kindness, God wants justice, God wants compassion, God wants all those things. And so we, we evaluate every decision that we make based on those values, and, um, and if you go back and look at all the decisions made in the Scripture, you see where some have, are more filled with those things than, than, than others. And those things tend to work out better in the long run. Sometimes it gets you in more trouble, frankly. But, but in the long run, they are part of, of God's way of doing things. Okay, so, so that's something we can say about our decisions. 
And yet we also understand that, that our best decisions sometimes are wrong. And that's why we say we ultimately throw ourselves on the mercy of a loving God who by his power alone can save the world from itself. There's a humility that has to be involved here, which is important as we say, I know God's plan for the world. Just follow me and do it my way, and that's what's going to bring the kingdom of heaven. Mm, I have a hard time going that far. <laughs> but we have to go somewhere, don't we? We have to make a decision about some things and say, we think this is of God and that is not of God. We think it is not of God to enslave human beings. We think that it is not of God to destroy the world's resources for the sake of our pleasure. There are lots of things that we think are not of God, but we have to continually evaluate those things, don't we? You see how the only two things in life worth talking about are religion and politics? <laughs> because in a lot of ways, that's what it all comes down to, doesn't it? Yeah, so thank you for that, that rambling comment that is exactly... <laughs> that's, that's, that's where all of us are. That's where all of us are. Let's get back to Melchizedek. All right, I told you there were two stories going on here. So Sodom, king of Sodom comes to Abraham and says, hey, let's cut a deal. I'd like to have some of my stuff back. I know I really can't ask you for that. But, you know, Abraham, because of his faith, because of his political shrewdness, because of lots of reasons that are all mixed up in there, Abraham gives him half of his stuff back. But in that process, right, King Melchizedek of Salem, let's stop right there. King Melchizedek of Salem. Where is Salem? That's a new place that's brought into this conversation. Jerusalem. Yes. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a very, very old city. Uh, there's a wonderful book. Is it Ron Chernow? I forget who wrote it. It's, a, it's called A Biography of Jerusalem. Absolutely fascinating, incredibly complicated history. Jerusalem was a capital city, a fortress city built on a hill long before who we would call the people of God arrived. It was a Canaanite city, okay? It was called Salem. Salem is related to the word shalom, peace. Well, not just peace, but wholeness and wellness of being. King Melchizedek of Salem comes to Abraham, right? And he brings out bread and wine. Bread and wine. And he was priest of God Most High. Wait a minute. You just said he was a king. Now you've said he's a priest. Which was he? The answer is both, right? There was a time in human history, and in a sense for more of human history than, than less of human history, where Political rulers are also religious rulers, or where you can reverse that, equally so. Religious rulers are also political rulers, and especially in the ancient world, where people happen to believe that the gods or God was involved with everything, God also was involved with politics. And so Melchizedek is a king and a priest, the modern idea of the West is that we need to separate those things. And there's a long conversation there, of course. But in the ancient world, it's the same person, right? He brings out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Who in the world is God Most High? Remember, Melchizedek is not a Jew. He's not of the people of Abraham. In fact, the word Jew or that concept of the Hebrew people really hasn't developed yet, because we're still only talking about Abraham. That's an idea that comes along many generations later. But Melchizedek is not part of the story. But now he is part of the story. He gets involved in the story. He, he is priest of God Most High. Who is God Most High? Well, the Canaanites, like many ancient polytheistic religions understood that they didn't necessarily know who all the gods were, 
And sometimes, as in the first century when Paul goes to Greece and tells the Athenians that they have a statue to an unknown god so that they can hedge their bets and cover their bases and make sure they've got it all done. That's a little bit maybe of what the Canaanites were doing. But God Most High, the Creator God, Maker of heaven and earth, right? The Canaanites have lots of gods, but they also have a God who was the Maker. Okay? There's, there's, there's an interesting uh, uh, touch point there between the, the story of the Hebrew people, the Jews, the Judeo-Christian theology, and a pagan theology that says, yeah, there is a God who is Maker. Right? So Melchizedek comes and he blesses Abraham. Blessed be Abraham by God most high. You are blessed because this God has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now there's a, a political religious statement if there ever was one. You won, therefore God blessed you. God blessed you, therefore you won. Okay? Is that good theology? I do, is it always the winners who God blesses? Sometimes the bad guys win, don't they? All right, Hollywood finally got honest about that. I grew up where the bad guys always lost. I much preferred that world. <laughs> right? But sometimes the bad guys win for a while. There's a conversation to be had there. Right? Mel Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then what does Abraham do? Abraham gives Melchizedek one-tenth of everything. Okay, this is where stewardship sermons get started. <laughs> I'm only partly joking about that. It is literally true, right? Why, let's talk about why Abraham would give one-tenth of everything to Melchizedek. Why would he do that? I don't know is a good answer. There are some other answers, right? We, this is one of those places where we go and fill in some of the blanks, realizing that they are blanks and we'd have no right to fill them in, but we have to think about why that would be. I don't know, maybe Abraham has, already has some kind of a relationship with Melchizedek that we're not told about. As the story is told, he just appears out of nowhere, okay? And, and maybe, maybe Abraham, that's one option. Another option, maybe Abraham um, recognizes a faith in Melchizedek that he agrees with. El Elyon, God Most High, Maker of Heaven and Earth. Who, who has Abraham heard from? The Maker of Heaven and Earth. And so Abraham said, oh, maybe you're one of us. Right? Maybe Abraham says, here's, here's a, a guy who comes out, he's a king, but he's a priest, he's blessing me. Maybe God is involved in this. If God is involved in this, I need to support this. Which is where the stewardship message comes in. Right? Abraham is, a, in many respects, a prototype or an archetype, is probably a better way to put it, an example of a person of faith who sometimes messes up big time but eventually always comes back to God. Here's one of the places maybe where he's not messing up. Why would, we, why would the historians, why would the people who told the story and wrote the story, why would they tell this little piece of the story? Because it's remarkable, right? From the evidence we have in the story itself, there's no reason that Abraham would give one-tenth to Melchizedek, but he does, and, and it is extraordinary. Maybe, maybe Abraham was just wanting to make a political ally out of Melchizedek. That's a good human way of looking at it. Maybe Abraham was saying, I want to support and encourage this faith. There are different ways we can look at that. Melchizedek later on, as many of you already know, Melchizedek will be lifted out of the story of the Old Testament and reinterpreted in the theological thought of the people writing the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews. Go to chapter 7 of Hebrews. And Melchizedek is noted for several things. Just like Jesus, Melchizedek sort of appears from out of nowhere. 
Just like Jesus, Melchizedek is a priest of the high God. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, is talked about as a priest of God, a king of God, and a prophet of God. All of those different ways of looking at Jesus are explored in the book of Hebrews. So Melchizedek, even though he appears only once in this little brief vignette, uh, in looking back at the story of the Old Testament, New Testament people began to see that that God had been involved all along and, and God had been involved from outside of the the place where you would expect God to be involved. And that's the final thing I want to say about Melchizedek, right? The first huge battle in the early church was about whether or not God meant to include non-Jews, Gentiles, in the story of salvation. Peter and those who were originally close to Jesus said, no, God does not mean to include the Gentiles. Paul has a different take on that. And there's a big, you know, the Acts probably glosses over the heated arguments <laughs> that would have been had in Jerusalem after Paul comes back to confront Peter and say, look, the Gentiles are involved too. But one of the things that the early church did was look back into the story of the Old Testament and point out all those places along the way where Gentiles were involved. And Melchizedek is one of those, where we have a pagan king who's not part of the chosen people, who comes off really well in the story. He blesses Abraham. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? Okay, Barbara, we got a thought here. If you, if you have a thought, raise your hand so we can get a microphone in front of you. You know, the lesson I'm learning here is that I think that was inserted in the Bible at a very critical time because it's way back in time. Mm -hmm. And the lesson I think that I'm learning is that, you know what, we do not have to be part of an organized religion, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, that is not the only way to have a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any religion has the answer. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think this and other parts of the New Testament show us that, you know, we cannot be en encompassed in a certain type of people to be, uh, have the best relationship with God, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, okay. And uh, didn't, and didn't uh, Jesus heal both Jews and Gentiles? Yes, yeah. yes, okay. I'll go part of the way with you on that, but I'm going to challenge you on part of that. Okay? Uh, part of the way I'll go in saying is that most religion that I'm aware of is incredibly disorganized. Uh, and so um, that was meant to be funny. Is that funny? Is that not at all funny? I, don't know. Um, I think scripture says that God often appears and God is always at work outside of the normal channels where we would expect God to be involved. Right? And one of the human tendencies is to try to narrow God down to our particular way and our particular place. That does not mean, though, that so-called organized religion or our way of thinking about things and doing things is worthless. It's actually worth an awful lot. Uh, because without it, we would not have the, the, the proclamation of the story and the propagation of the people in any sense. Right, right. Not the only. Now, I do want to say that from classic Christian theology, we would say that what we believe is that we have, remember what I told you at the beginning the, the, from Dallas Willard, the Bible has the best information about the most important questions or the most reliable information, okay? Um, I happen to believe that in Jesus, we have the ultimate expression of God and that everything about all human religion or all human irreligion needs to be uh, looked at through the lens of who Jesus was, what he said, what he did, everything about Jesus. And of course, there are a ton of conversations to have about what that is. Um, but I believe that, that, that Jesus is the pinnacle of that. I will never say that Jesus is one of many. 
Okay, there are many who do. I understand that. And one of the reasons they do say that is because Jesus has often been used to beat other people up. <laughs> Jesus would not beat other people up. Okay? Uh, and we have, to, we have to separate that out for what that is. But I, don't look at, I can't look at any other faith system, any other religion, or any other lack of a faith system and say that there is anything in those that is superior to Jesus. That's where I have to go with that. Now, I, I'm not saying necessarily that you said that, but we have to be careful when we say that, that there are many different ways into the same place. Um, I think there are many ways to the same place. The supreme way, the way that we know, is Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're, God's doing a lot of stuff outside of the place where we think God would work. Jesus himself said, my father has many sheep of whom you do not know, right? To keep us humble about where we are. Yeah, Stephanie, and then we better stop. I went to school in the heart of Appalachia, mm -hmm. very isolated, 95% hillside, peopled by originally people who were illiterate, which was a real fertile ground for, um, for people to, others to come in and exploit their lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we had snake handling churches there. Um, we had the belief of, of infant damnation, that if you did not achieve an age where you accepted Jesus as your savior and you died before you did that, you were damned. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I know organized religion sometimes gets, gets the bad rap, but there needs to be people who know, you know, when you, when you can't read and you don't know what's, what's in the Bible, then you're really um, easily victimized yeah. by someone yeah. who comes in and says, oh, you know, if you have great faith and the snake won't kill you. Well, we saw that we had a pastor of a snake handling church whose 19-year-old daughter was bitten and died. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, because in the emergency room. So, you know, that's, you need, you need structure, some structure to make sure that we don't get that kind of stuff embedded yeah. in a culture. Yeah, I, I think that's a great example. We need structure in the sense that we need a, a larger community within which we, we grow in our own faith. Um, and that community is bigger than we think it is. I think that's, that's a lot of Barbara's point, which I certainly agree with. Uh, there's a lot of things we have to learn from people that are outside the boundaries of where we would normally say the boundaries are. Um, there are some who will say, no, my relationship with God is purely my thing. Nobody else is involved with that. That's actually not true if you talk about their history but they want to believe that that's the case. Um, and we'd all like to believe that's the case in some sense. I don't need anybody else. Uh, but we do need everybody else. So all those are important. Wow, these are big things, aren't they? All, all out of this tiny little story. It's fun stuff. It's fun stuff. All right, we better pray. Otherwise, you're going to shoot me. God, thanks for being with us today. Amen.